Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 20, Thatcher vs. Thanksgiving. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Burn what we burn. Sell your blood when we sell our blood. Twelve bucks and a free cookie. What a country. (laughs) And today, I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 7, Bart vs. Thanksgiving. And that first aired November 22nd, 1990, which, according to all the calendars I can find was actually Thanksgiving Day itself. Ah, there we are. And I'm going to be talking about the downfall of Margaret Thatcher, who ceased to be leader of the Conservative Party and therefore the Prime Minister of the UK on November 28th, 1990, six days after Bart versus Thanksgiving was first aired. I can't believe we're writing Thatcher out. She's been money for us. I'm afraid so. Ah, well, there we go. Well, if you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an email to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Tom, we have some intelligence on the golf commentator Peter Alice. Yes, we do. So, Tim Worthington eeled us to say that Peter Alice had his own BBC Two series in the late 70s and early 80s called Around With Alice. A sort of very slow talk show in which he played around with a golf-loving celebrity, e.g., Brucey, Tarby, Lynchy, Act. If the theme tune to that wasn't Alice, Uber bleep is Alice, <laughs> then I'll be very disappointed. Well, actually, I have something to say about the theme music because that was Music Box Dancer by Frank Gambale. I assume Gambale. Could be Gambale. Who knows? Uh, and I don't care. So, <laughs> um, which, hold on to your hats is the music for Homer's gymnastics routine in the flashback in Season 9, Episode 6, Bart Starr. Oh, nice. Nice little link. Uh, Tim goes on to say that Alice also apparently taught Scene Canary how (laughs) to play golf for Goldfinger. So thanks to uh, Tim for that. Yep. Also, long-time listener Kim Hirons. uh, There's no point in pretending that's not my mum, by the way. (laughs) Worth noting at this stage that my dad stopped listening after three episodes, as whilst he really liked your bits of the podcast, he didn't like mine. <laughs> oh no. Cats in the cradle with the silver spoon. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, so Kim tells us that Peter Alice was a bad sexist. Here's a quote from an interview he did with Newsweek. As in... opposed to a good sexist? <laughs> <laughs> I was just adding bad for emphasis. There, I see. But, uh, yeah. Here's a quote from Newsweek in 2017. I'll try not to be too much of a dinosaur, but remember, dinosaurs are making a comeback. Yes, Peter, we're well aware your generation decided to scorch the earth behind it so nothing will ever grow again. Mm. Cheers for that. Anyway, he goes on to say, no matter how you wrap it up, women will never be able to do things that men can do. Apparently he has a long history of this kind of dickheadery. Yes. Um, so there we go. Peter Alice, bad sexist. Yeah. Thanks to Kim for that. Okay. I, I, I can perfectly believe that. I can believe I can believe anything that I hear about Peter Alice because I'm not going to bother to check because it's golf and, and I really don't care about golf. So please send in your Peter Alice facts. So I want to know more. Excellent. Excellent. I, I had a weird Peter Alice related coincidence as well. So, um, Retro Games YouTuber Octavius Kitten hasn't been in touch, but I was watching one of their videos right after we recorded the last podcast. Literally the first thing that I did after we recorded the podcast, I was really surprised to hear Peter Alice's voice on the video. So it turns out he did a voiceover for a terrible looking game called Real World Golf. Okay. Which was made to accompany a suitably poor peripheral called Game Track, which has a, a tiny golf club. <laughs> tiny golf club that you swing. Really weird. Really weird, that. A weird coincidence and a weird product to have been made in the first place. Um, but if you want to know more, check out Octavius Kitten's video. There's a one instead of the I in Octavius, by the way. It's a bit like our underscore, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Game Track. And hear the dulcet, 
apparently very sexist tones, of the man himself. Oh, there we are. Well, that, that's got to be money for old rope if you're a golf commentator doing, doing the voice for a golf game. Absolutely. Um, oh, great shot. Oh, he's missed the fairway. Lovely drive. He's stuck in a bunker. Oh, he's charlied that one right up. It was back, Do that in, all day. back in the day as well when uh, commentary on computer games wasn't nearly as good as it is now. I remember playing the, uh, the early uh, WWF Smackdown <laughs> games and sort of hearing, a great move there by player one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. That's a great goal by... Sutton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would imagine, after all that Peter Alice talk, there's only only one question in our listeners' minds, and that is, what was the UK number one at the time that Bart versus Thanksgiving was aired? Oh, okay. Well, it was still Unchained Melody. Yeah, yeah, because that was number one forever. I yes. remember that from when I was a kid. Yeah, indeed, it was. Uh, and I looked at number two, and it was a song called "Don't Worry" by Kim Appleby. And I could neither remember it nor summon up the enthusiasm to Google it. And number three actually gets to number one for our next edition. So I'm calling an audible. We're going all the way down to number, well, five. So it's not really that far. Uh, I'm fed up of passing good songs by. And at number five on that day was EMF with Unbelievable. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Now, that's actually going to peak at number three in early December. But this is our best chance to discuss it. Um, okay. Just based on what's, what's going on around then. Its biggest success was hitting number one in America's Billboard Hot 100 in 1991, sparking all the usual talk you used to get of a new British invasion of the American charts, which, as <laughs> usual, ultimately came to nothing. Yeah, just because it's a really catchy song with a great little melody, and it ends with, You're unbelievable! Yeah, there you go. Just, just brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> so EMF were, I'm going to say, a rock band from Gloucestershire, uh, but with enough dance elements to sit very comfortably alongside Madchester and the more psychedelic guitar-stroke-dance crossover music of the time. Case in point, lot of samples in this song, including some of the comedian Andrew Dice Clay, uh, and one of somebody saying, uh, and Tom, you might need to bleep this in the edit. <laughs> okay. What the f***? Which repeatedly appears throughout the song, uncensored, and didn't stop the song from being played on daytime radio and used on adverts, possibly because it's just slightly distorted enough for you to think, did they say what they said? Oh, is that about... What? What? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. What? What? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I, to be honest, I've never heard it as that. But, okay, I will do now. Wikipedia also reckoned there was a sample of our old friend Yarkid K on there. <laughs> But feeling that that was a bit too convenient for a callback, I subcontracted some research on that to the aforementioned Tim Worthington, who knows this song inside out, and we're both convinced it's not the case. But if anyone knows any differently, you know where we are. Because I would love for Yarkid K to have been on that for sheer convenience. Nice. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily fair that uh, EMF have a one-hit wonder label, but at the same time, there is no doubt whatsoever that this was their biggest and most enduring hit. So I can't form too much of a convincing argument against that, but suffice it to say there were other singles that performed well in the UK charts. Okay. At least in the context of them being providers of alternative music. So follow-up single, I believe, will reach a UK high of number six. But will we be talking about that in a future episode? Probably not, as I've pretty much run out of things to say about EMF without mentioning their bass player's foreskin. So the production number for this one was 7F07, and the US viewership was a Nielsen of 11.9, equal to about 11 million households. The chalkboard gag is, I will not do that thing with my tongue. And the couch gag is the grandpa is already on the couch as the family rush in, and is incoherent with surprise, as we noticed, in front of a very discoloured wall. Yes, it looks, it, it, it looks unpolished, that mm. scene. Cheap. I, I'm going to say it. Cheap. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um... The writer of the episode was George Meyer, who we discussed previously in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Mezier, <laughs> which I had to spell phonetically for myself. <laughs> so here's what happens. We join Bart and Lisa fighting over the family glue, which sounds equally euphemistic and like the name of a terrible top man folk band in the fashion of Mumford and Sons. <laughs> and if you want to Photoshop us an album cover for the family glue, <laughs> think uh, period costumes, sawdust... Rustic instrumentation, inadvisable man buns, and terrible, terrible cliched songs. Well, you know where to send them via eel. <laughs> That's got me going, Matt, the family glue. 
Anyway, then we have a very self-referential joke about the balloons in the Thanksgiving parade before Maggie somehow survives a trip up an obstacle-filled staircase to see Lisa's centerpiece for the upcoming Thanksgiving dinner, which is a painstakingly constructed tribute to the trailblazing women who made America great, including Georgia O'Keeffe, a painter. I don't know much about art, so I can't really comment, except to parrot off this one fact that I got from that Wikipedia. <laughs> In 2014, O'Keeffe's 1932 painting Jimson Weed sold for $44,405,000. Wow. That's more than three times the previous world auction record for any female artist. Susan B. Anthony, a social reformer and women's rights activist who was also involved in the campaign to end slavery and was the first actual woman to be featured on US coinage in 1979. She was referenced again in Season 11, Episode 22, Behind the Laughter, where comic book guy mentions that Lisa tried to buy the first edition of a comic called Susan B. Anthony Man. <laughs> and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, again, this is from Wikipedia, she was an American journalist, author, women's suffrage advocate and conservationist known, as quite rightly stated by Lisa, for her staunch defence of the Everglades against efforts to drain it and reclaim land for development. She was born in 1890 and lived to the age of 108. Wow. Very good innings for that time. Anyway, we should probably get back to the episode. <laughs> Maggie contributes to the centrepiece with a magic marker, whilst Bart shows yet more signs of his undiagnosed ADD in trying to help Marge prepare Thanksgiving dinner. Homer shows no such industry as he watches the big game on the TV before Patty and Selma arrive, smugly bearing alternative dishes in case anyone finds Marge's turkey too dry, which frankly makes me want to punch them. <laughs> Homer misses the halftime show, featuring the well-groomed young go-getters of Hooray for Everything, saluting the greatest hemisphere on Earth, the dancingest hemisphere of them all, the Western Hemisphere, <laughs> to pick Grandpa up from the retirement castle. And Jacqueline Bouvier arrives at the Simpson house, completing the full family lineup. She has laryngitis, so only has enough strength to say one thing to Marge you never do anything right. <laughs> Everyone admires Lisa's centerpiece until Bart brings in the turkey and wants Lisa to move the decoration to free up some space. In the ensuing struggle, the centerpiece is thrown into the fire that Homer had been failing to get going just before. A nice little bit of setup there. Mm. And it burns. Bart is sent to his room, having ruined Thanksgiving, and Lisa goes to hers to mournfully play her sax and write poetry, whilst Homer presses on with the worst prayer ever. Bart doubles down on his bad behaviour by fleeing the house with Santa's little helper, rather than apologising to Lisa. He tries to steal a pumpkin pie from Mr Burns' windowsill, but the hounds put a sop to that, leading Bart to the literal wrong side of the tracks, where he sells blood to fund a dinner at a clinic near a massage parlour, <laughs> and an offie that is proudly proclaiming, yes, we have rock gut. He winds up collapsing in the gutter in a pretty dark moment. He is revived by some local gentlemen of the road, who steer him to a soup kitchen, where he is filmed by the Channel 6 News and subsequently seen by the family. Homer rushes to find him, as Bart has a rare flash of conscience and gives his blood money to his rescuers. He returns home, but imagines himself being blamed for all of the family, and indeed the country's, problems, and decides to brood on the roof. But hearing Lisa's distress, he invites her to join him. Bart is unable to explain why he burned her centrepiece, but looks deep down inside himself and finds a spot. Something he wishes wasn't there, because he feels bad he hurt his sister's feelings. And he apologises. Marge and Homer eavesdrop on said apology, and the family have a belated Thanksgiving feast of turkey sandwiches. The end. Mm. It's very sweet, that one. It it's is. very sweet. It, it's um, one of the nice things about it, and one of the things that really stood out with early Simpsons that set it apart from all the other family comedies at the time is that they are a dysfunctional family, and they're displayed warts and all. And if you ask me, that just makes it even more sentimental when Bart and Lisa eventually make up. I agree, yeah, uh, very much so. And perhaps because of their choice to have a more realistic family, at this stage, this is before Homer goes full, Captain Wacky, obviously. Mm. But um, uh, one of the advantages of that is that the sweetness never goes the wrong side of Morkish. It's, mm. always, it's always pretty much spot on. 
Um, would you like to hear about the quite a few character debuts we had in this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Jacqueline Bouvier, who is, of course, Patty, Selma and Marge's mother and grandmother to Bart, Lisa, Maggie and Ling. Stay tuned. This is her first contemporary appearance, although she was shown being awful to Marge in a flashback in Season 1, Episode 6, Moaning Lisa. The widow of flight stewardess Clancy Bouvier. Stay tuned. (laughs) She is best known for whirlwind romances with Abe Simpson and Mr. Burns in Season 5, Episode 21, Lady Bouvier's Lover. She was named after the former American First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, whose maiden name was Jacqueline Lee Bouvier. So another Kennedy reference, and they're not just limited to the Quimbies. Also, Bill and Marty. Well, sort of. They were apparently also in Bart Gets an F, which I didn't notice, sorry. But I like them, so let's just quickly acknowledge them. They are usually depicted as DJs for Springfield's local radio station, KBBL FM 102.5. They present The Breakfast Show, and are often seen commentating on or at local events. Their faltering attempts to deny Bart an elephant will lead them to the edge of firing and replacement with a machine that they can't help but praise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you see that Twitter thread? Someone was basically saying Bart gets an elephant was a metaphor for Brexit. And it really is. Honestly, if if you want to dig that out, it's... It's amazing. Also, also the line of the episode, it looks like those clowns in Congress did it again. What a bunch of clowns. <laughs> you can just use that for anything that's going on in politics at any time. <laughs> it's brilliant. There was, um, there was also there was a bit in Game of Thrones of all things. Don't worry, by the way, if you're listening to this. This won't be a spoiler. Um, I'm just going to reference a, a particular piece of dialogue. And to be honest, everyone's probably a step ahead of me on this one. I've never seen Game of Thrones, but I feel no moral superiority about it. Excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for stating that. The, um, yeah, there's a, there's a bit in the, the first episode of the latest series where um, a character called Cersei Lannister is disappointed that she's not getting the elephants she was promised. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's it's there's all sorts of where's my elephant uh, memes yes, yes, coming yeah. out on the back of that. Those perky teens in Hooray for Everything will be back too in season four, episode thirteen, Selma's Choice, and they'll be performing what one assumes is a very cleaned up version of Walk on the Wild Side. And our final uh, debut for this episode, The Hounds. Mm. Though first mentioned back in Season 1, Episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Home, this is the first on-screen appearance for Mr. Burns' trained pack of attack dogs. Mr. Burns is eventually revealed to have a number of different sets of hounds, including the Therapy Hounds, playful poodles intended to calm people down, released in Season 27, Episode 21, Simprovised, and the Comforting Hounds, three English sheepdog, released by Mr. Burns on himself, in Season 29, Episode 11, Frink Gets Testy. Despite rumours, we are never told outright whether or not Mr. Burns also has a set of dogs with bees in their mouth and when they bark they shoot bees at you. <laughs> we await confirmation impatiently. <laughs> Two notable hounds are introduced in Season 3, Episode 19, Dog of Death. Crippler, who has been with Mr. Burns since the 60s and has bagged a few hippies in his time. And, temporarily, Santa's Little Helper. Oh, yes. I forgot about that one. Mm. So, Thanksgiving, then. The thing. Well, it's the, uh, it's the meal apparently shared between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. Yes. You can tell I haven't really researched this. No. But, yeah, it's, um, it's something to do with that. Well, it's one of those big ironies, which is, you know, they're meant, for, they're meant to be thankful for the Native Americans sharing their food, essentially. And look what happened afterwards. Yeah. (sighs) But I was, uh, yes, I I was honoured to go to a Thanksgiving dinner last year uh, with my girlfriend's parents, uh, who are San Antonians. Hopefully I've said that right. Mm -hmm. Yep, and we saw the whole family, uh, made the trip out to see some cousins, I believe. Just... Constant uh, low-level hedonism, sort of, you know, session ales and uh, food by the bucket load. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody uh, really welcoming. 
uh, even to the confused, stammering Englishman. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and the, the big game as well, as we saw Homer Homer viewing. Mm. There will generally be football on Thanksgiving, and, and I was uh, I was lucky to witness the Cowboys versus the Redskins. Yes. Now, could there be a more uh, appropriate Thanksgiving? <laughs> God. Uh, and better than that, the Cowboys won because obviously the Washington team should never win anything until they change the name, change the name, change the name. There is no need to have that name anymore. It is literally the worst thing you could be doing. Yes. And apparently Dallas have not been uh, winning that often either. Dallas being the nearest place with a football team to San Antonio. So yeah, fair enough. Therefore uh, supported. But there was something I noticed about it. At the end of that game, it was Christmas. Hey. Prior to that game, and even in the advertisement breaks during that game, there was no mention of Christmas. There were a few mentions of Thanksgiving. Nothing about Christmas. But then, bang, Christmas advert straight out. Oh, I see. Right, right. First advert break after the the final, I was going to say kick of the game, but it's American football, so... Punt, throw, shove, arm around the neck. Yeah. Whatever it is they do. Yeah, yeah. Tackle. There we go. That's a good one. We'll we'll stick with tackle. All right. Yeah, and and then it was just Christmas. So I quite like it as a a demarcation of, like, everything before this is not Christmas, and everything Mm. after is Christmas. Mm. As I am one of those people that complains bitterly about Christmas starting early, earlier every year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But that could just be a getting old thing, I suppose. But anyway, yeah, uh, Thanksgiving, I recommend it. Okay, fair enough. So let's uh, close on some did you knows, because Lord knows I've been uh, rambling on for long enough. (laughs) So, uh, oh, and here's a good segue. Homer is rooting for the Dallas Cowboys, the same team he has ambitions to own, as mentioned in Season 8, Episode 2, You Only Move Twice. He also reveals his bet for the game, as rather than wanting them to win, he wants them to lose, but by less than five and a half points. Hmm. This style of betting foreshadows Season 3, Episode 14, Lisa the Greek. And also on the football game, the commentator mentions players called Kogan and Wolodarski. Yes. A reference to Simpsons writers Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski. And finally, the song performed by Hooray for Everything, as heard in Homer's Car, is a cover of Get Dancing by Discotex and the Sexolettes. Okay. I have not made that up. Fair enough. Not heard that one before, but okay. But now we move to our more terrible business. We do. It's time to bury Thatcher. Yes. Not literally, but... Mm. Oh, that's coming. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so... Right, regular listeners, hi Tim, <laughs> will know that Margaret Thatcher is no stranger to this podcast. Or rather, this podcast is no stranger to Margaret Thatcher. I very much doubt Thatcher listens to this. <laughs> So we've discussed her role in the 1982 Falklands War in episode 7 and the poll tax riots in episode 10, the events of which played a big part in her downfall. But who was Margaret Thatcher? And most importantly, why do I hate her so much? So she was born Margaret Hilda Roberts in Grantham, which is a fairly nondescript town in Lincolnshire. I think that's fair to say, if anyone's ever been to Grantham. Uh, She was born on 13th of August, 1925. Her parents were Alfred and Beatrice Roberts. Alfred was a shopkeeper and a Methodist preacher, so the young Margaret had a strict religious upbringing. Just before the Second World War started, the family gave sanctuary to a young Jewish girl who had fled the Nazis. That would influence her for the rest of her life. See episode 11 to find out how. In 1943, she went to Somerville College, Oxford to study chemistry. She specialised in X-ray crystallography and was taught by Dorothy Hodgkin, no less, a legendary Nobel Prize-winning biochemist who determined the structures of insulin, penicillin and vitamin B12. And that's one of the things that annoys me about Thatcher. She was a scientist. Because I'm from a science background myself and I'm trying to say, no, we're not all cold-hearted and calculated. Some of, them actually, some of us actually have real feelings for things. And then you have Thatcher, yes. So... And it sounds like she was relatively competent, unlike uh, Ceausescu's missus. Oh yeah, absolutely. She was. Um, she she knew her stuff. I mean, she never made any massive contributions, but she knew enough to be an industrial chemist, as as we are about to learn. Oh. 
So while at Oxford, she became president of the Oxford University Conservative Association, as you might expect for someone who goes on to be prime minister. After graduating, she had a few jobs in industry, including working as a research chemist for Jay Lyons, where she worked on ice cream emulsifiers. So this was the origin of the myth that she invented Mr. Whippy ice cream. Now, that stuff was already for sale in the States, and she was working in the general area, but no, she didn't invent Mr. Whippy, so yeah. Um, But unfortunately, that's a myth that's persistent, annoyingly persistent. Okay. So while she was working, she continued her journey into conservative politics. In 1948, the Labour politician and founder of the NHS, Nye Bevan, gave a speech in which he described Tories as being lower than vermin. In response to this, grassroots Tories set up the Vermin Club, and Margaret Roberts rose to the rank of Chief Rat. I quite like that, actually. That's uh, at least they've got a bit of yeah, a bit of a sense of humour about them. That, that, that sounds quite punk rock as well. Chief a little Rat. bit. And yeah. uh, I'm guessing it couldn't be any further from being that, but there mm-hmm. we go. Mm-hmm. So in 1950, she became the candidate for the Dartford Conservative Association. At a dinner to celebrate her candidacy, she met a businessman called Dennis Thatcher. The pair went on to marry, she took his name and became Margaret Thatcher, and she also converted his religion, which was Anglicanism. In 1950, she moved to Dartford, a town in Kent just outside London. There were general elections in 1950 and 1951. As it was a safe Labour seat, she lost on both occasions, but did succeed in bringing the Labour majority down by several thousand. So while in Dartford, she trained as a barrister, qualifying in 1953. Her twin children, Carol and Mark, were born shortly after. Mark would go on to try and overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea, while Carol would end up eating kangaroo testicles on live TV. Please don't give me any more context on either of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But now, now, this is a bit of an aside, but I've always thought their names were a bit strange. So Carol and Mark... Carol Mark. Carol Mark. Say it fast. Carol Mark. Carol Mark. Oh. Like, it sounds rather a lot like Karl Marx. Yeah. Carol Mark. Yeah. Which is an odd choice for a staunch capitalist. I was, I was hungry, so I was thinking Karamak. <laughs> Thatcher's quest for Parliament would not be achieved until the end of the decade. The previous year, she was selected to contest the safe Tory seat of Finchley in north-west London. So it's a little bit like... She'd done her time in a safe Labour seat, so now she's in a safe Tory seat. She won it in the 1959 election, becoming an MP at the age of 34. Weirdly, she won a lottery in Parliament that allowed backbenchers to propose legislation, so her maiden speech was in support of her own bill, which required council meetings to be held in public, which sounds pretty agreeable to me. However, in 1961, she went against her own party and supported the return of the corporal punishment of birching, which is a form of whipping. Oh, which is nice. So in the same year, she was promoted to the front bench, becoming parliamentary undersecretary at the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance, which you probably know more about than I do. So, but anyway, it sounds a bit dry. That uh... I think it's all DWP these days. Yeah, all these yeah. things got, sort of got folded out and then folded back in. The Tories lost the 1964 election and were kept out of power throughout the 60s. So Thatcher continued in shadow front bench roles, including housing and land, where she argued that council tenants should have the right to buy their own houses. In 1966, she moved to the shadow treasury, arguing against price controls and for free market principles. During this time, her views on social justice issues were pretty mixed. She voted to decriminalise homosexuality and abortions, and also voted to ban hair coursing. That's good. But she also voted in favour of capital punishment and against relaxing divorce laws. That's bad. Did she contain potassium benzoate? (laughs) Well, she probably used it when she was making her ice cream. Ah. (laughs) See, it all links in. I'm Mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. not just throwing these things out. In 1968, Enoch Powell made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech. (laughs) Yes. Arguing passionately against immigration from the Commonwealth to the UK. Thatcher came to his defence, urging party leader Ted Heath not to fire him. In a 1991 interview, she said that he made a valid argument, if in sometimes regrettable terms. So if there's a reason to not like Thatcher... Yeah, it's supporting Enoch Powell with his Rivers of Blood nonsense. 
So the Tories won the 1970 general election and Thatcher was made Secretary of State for Education and Science. Her most famous escapade was to stop the milk ration that schoolchildren were given, earning her the nickname Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't all she did in this role. The first thing she did was stop mandatory conversion of grammar schools to comprehensives. Labour government had this idea that there shouldn't be privilege in education. In case, in case you've got any listeners who aren't familiar what, with what a grammar school is, basically you take a test at 11, called the 11 plus, and if you pass it, then you get to go to grammar school with the elites, and if you don't pass it, then you don't. So it basically sorts children out based on, on their educational prowess at age 11, which is pretty unfair in my book. And in science, she adopted a policy of having science funding driven by market forces. And as someone who used to work in science myself, I've got to say that I absolutely hate that idea. Okay, just very quickly, in science, you roughly have two areas of research. You have basic research and applied research. And basic research is finding stuff out for the sake of finding stuff out. So it's like, well, we've worked out that... That does that, so does this do this, does this do this? And it's how we get a very, very detailed understanding of the world with stuff that might not appear immediately useful. But stuff can become useful down the line. For example, in physics, the subatomic particle known as the positron was discovered. And that's now used in medical imaging, because once people found out about them, they found out what you could do with them. So that's an advantage of basic research. On the other hand, there is applied research where you're trying to do something specific, like you're trying to cure a disease or make a material or something like that. And that's great, but putting it over basic research because it makes money, if you ask me, is a total folly. And Thatcher was very much in favour of having science driven by market forces. Not a good idea. But anyway, there were two general elections in 1974, and the eventual result was a Labour government. Thatcher challenged Ted Heath for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Heath lost the first ballot and subsequently resigned. On the second ballot, Thatcher defeated Heath's preferred successor, William Whitelaw, becoming leader in 1975, with Whitelaw becoming her deputy. During her time in opposition, she acquired her more famous nickname. She gave a speech in Kensington Town Hall where she warned against Soviet aggression and the need for Britain to strengthen its military. Captain Yuri Gavrilov wrote a response in the Soviet journal Red Star, where he dubbed her the Iron Lady, alluding to the epithet of Imperial Germany's Otto von Bismarck, who was known as the Iron Chancellor. And it's, a, it's really weird how iron has been used throughout history. So Wellington was the Iron Duke, Bismarck the Iron Chancellor, and then Churchill described the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe as the Iron Curtain, and then you got Thatcher being known as the Iron Lady. Wouldn't you just love to be the Iron Duke, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine if you walked into a pub and people went, look, it's the Iron Duke. <laughs> Under the Labour government of James Callaghan, the UK struggled economically, culminating with the winter of discontent. So in an attempt to curb inflation, the government capped public sector pay rises at 5%, hoping that the private sector would follow suit. In response, unions organised strikes that paralysed the country. The strikers included refuse collectors and grave diggers, meaning that rubbish piled up and the dead went unburied. It was also an incredibly cold winter as well, so, you know, that must have been horrible to live through. So the Callaghan government lost a vote of no confidence and a general election was called in early 1979. Thatcher's Tories would win it with the majority of 44 MPs and she became Prime Minister on the 4th of May 1979. As she arrived at Downing Street, she attempted to say that she was going to heal rifts by paraphrasing the prayer of St. Francis. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And when there is despair, may we bring hope. Ugh. It's horrible even saying those words, because <laughs> they were just so insincere. Anyway... So once in power, Thatcher set about cutting direct taxation and public spending while increasing interest rates. As the recession continued, some prompted her to change course, resulting in her famous The Ladies Not For Turning speech. So early on, she started the Right to Buy scheme, which gave council tenants the right to buy the properties they were living in. So just a brief word about how council housing works. So the council, local authority, 
owns the property and lets it out to tenants at a subsidised rate. Right to buy allowed those tenants to take ownership of the property. Now I have mixed feelings about this. On one hand, I believe that everyone should have a roof over their head and the state should facilitate that where possible. On the other hand, it's hard to deny that home ownership is good for individuals and possibly the economy in general. If you own your own house and want to get a business off the ground, you can use your house as collateral for a business loan. If that business works out, you can then get to employ people, which creates jobs. The problem was the houses were sold too cheaply and councils didn't have the money to build new houses. This has contributed to the housing shortage we have in this country today. In the early 80s, the average house price was around three and a half times the average salary. Today, in 2019, it's almost eight times. Added to that, 40% of houses bought in the right-to-buy scheme are now in the possession of private landlords, who of course charge their tenants way more than the council did. And 40% is the national average, and the figure is highest in Milton Keynes, <laughs> where it's 70%, adding to Milton Keynes's reputation as somewhere where you don't want to go, and that's being polite. I, I went to Milton Keynes many a time when I was younger, um, being a Bedford resident, it was basically the closest place you could drive to that had major shops, like right. the Virgin Megastore. Oh, wow, that, that ages this whole wow. comment. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, it's roundabouts. It's yep. like somebody built a Sim City. <laughs> yeah. Just just constant blocks. Yeah. Yep. And, and in fact, I think it was conceived on an American system. So they, they were trying to make New York and they wound up with Milton Keynes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one thing I noticed when American tourists come to England and they go to somewhere like London or York and they go, oh, wow, the roads are all over the place. It's not like this back home. Everything's in blocks back home. And just, Well, if you want to see how that was done the English way, then check out Milton Keynes. But you, you do not want to do that. <laughs> My, my favourite little Milton Keynes story um, Bill Bailey tells. He went to see Marilyn Manson, and I've never seen Marilyn Manson, but apparently at the start of every gig, he chants the name of the city that he's playing in. So he's going, New York, New York, New York, or Paris, Paris, Paris. And at one point he played Milton Keynes Bowl. So at the start of this of gig, this you know, big goth metal gig, he's begging, Milton Keynes. It sounds amazing. <laughs> so anyway, from Milton Keynes to uh, the Troubles in Northern Ireland. <laughs> so throughout the 80s, the Tory government really struggled with what was going on in Northern Ireland, really struggled with the Troubles. So in late 1980, IRA members in prison went on hunger strike in protest at not being considered political prisoners. On March the 1st, 1981, the hunger striker Bobby Sands was elected an MP despite being in prison. He died on May 5th, following 66 days without food. Riots followed, and 100,000 people attended his funeral. But Thatcher was, like, steadfast. And it's like, no, not negotiating with him. No, no, just let him get on with it, really. So as the economy continued to struggle following the 1981 budget, civil disturbances followed. Riots in Brixton and Toxteth occurred, with people protesting against high unemployment and heavy-handed police tactics. The police were allowed to use stop and search on anyone they liked, using what at the time were known as sus laws. As a little side note, the Museum of Liverpool doesn't call them the Toxteth Riots, but the L8 Uprising, which is pretty generous. But uh, there we are. So the national mood was briefly lifted by the wedding of Charles and Diana on July 29th, 1981. Oh, hooray. Yep, I know, yep. But that was short-lived as unemployment topped 3 million in January 1982. Then came the Falklands War. We've done a whole show on it, so I won't go over it again, but Britain's victory against the odds gave Thatcher a huge popularity boost and the Tories won the 1983 election in a landslide. Shortly afterwards came a major battle with a powerful trade union. In 1984, the National Coal Board owned 174 mines, but planned to close 20 of them with the loss of 20,000 jobs. In response, the National Union of Mine Workers, led by Arthur Scargill, called for a strike. However, Scargill refused to put industrial action on a ballot to the members, and the High Court therefore ruled the strike illegal. Nevertheless, the strike went ahead. 
Thatcher would go on record describing the union leaders as the enemy within. Now, her strategy was to build up coal stocks, keep as many miners working as possible, the so-called scabs, and increase police resources to combat flying pickets. Clashes between picketers and the police were common. The largest has gone down in history as the Battle of Orgreave, which saw 5,000 picketers attempt to shut down a coking plant outside Rotherham. They were met by a similar number of police, and while the picketers were peaceful, former Labour MP and historian Tristram Hunt described it as a brutal example of legalised state violence. Ultimately, the unions did not succeed in their aims, and the pit closures went ahead. The job losses were devastating to the mining towns, and unemployment continues to be high in those regions to this day. On October 12, 1984, Thatcher had a brush with death when an IRA bomb went off in the Tory party conference hotel in Brighton, killing five and injuring 30. Thatcher herself was unharmed. I read a comic once that posited the reason that Thatcher was unharmed was that she was wearing the Eye of Zoltek. Right. Which in the old um, 60s comic strip Kelly's Eye granted its uh, wearer immunity from all damage. Right, Despite, as my dad, who isn't listening, uh, pointed (laughs) out many a time, hanging round his neck on a piece of rope. So, like, often a conceit would be he'd be thrown into a volcano. Well, the rope would burn off and he'd lose the eye of Zoltik. Sorry. This is all all by the by. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if, If anybody wants a real kind of Thatcher conspiracy, then um, just, just just take a look around her neck as she's coming out of that hotel. Okay. I, I assume it's just because she wasn't near the bomb. I mean, um, Norman Tebbit was injured, and Norman Tebbit's wife lost her legs. So, you know, you know it was serious stuff. Uh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that happening, actually. It's one of my... One of my earliest memories of, okay. of news is watching the sort of rolling footage from, from that Brighton hotel. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, shortly afterwards, the National Telecoms Company, BT, was privatised. So two million people purchased shares in it, in the biggest privatisation so far. The next year saw clashes between the Thatcher government and Labour-run local councils, including here in Liverpool. She abolished the Greater London Council, led by Ken Livingstone, the world's foremost Hitler expert, but I've already talked a bit about that in episode 10, so... Uh, 1986 saw the Big Bang in the City... A raft of deregulation was introduced in the City of London, which included abolishing minimum fixed commission on trades, ending separation between those buying stocks and those advising investors, and allowing foreign firms to own UK stockbrokers. While these changes cut costs and allowed huge profits in the short term, they sowed the seeds of the 2008 credit crunch. Shortly afterwards, British gas was privatised, generating over £5 billion. By 1987, the economy had stabilised and unemployment started to fall. A strong performance by the Tories in local elections prompted Thatcher to call for a general election in 1987, which she won comfortably. Not long after the election victory, events would come together that saw the downfall of Thatcher. We've already talked about the poll tax in episode 10, but what we haven't discussed is Europe. And, you know, the Tories infighting over Europe (laughs) is kind of a regular occurrence in the 21st century. So Thatcher's approach to Europe was complicated. She was very keen on Europe as a trading entity, speaking very enthusiastically about the single market. However, she was broadly against political union. This all came to a head in 1989. The Cabinet had forced her to accept a plan for the UK to join the exchange rate mechanism, a precursor to joining a European single currency. I'll have to do a later show to explain how that played out. In response, Thatcher removed her longtime ally, Geoffrey Howe, from his position as Foreign Secretary, and he became Deputy Prime Minister. On November 13th, Howe resigned from the government. He was the last of her original 1979 cabinet, and his resignation was a serious blow to her leadership. The next day, Michael Heseltine launched a leadership challenge. Although Thatcher got the most votes in the ballot, party rules said that she needed to be ahead of her nearest rival by 15% to avoid a second ballot. She was a mere four votes off this target. Initially, she vowed to fight on, but after she met each of her cabinet individually, it became clear to her that they wanted her to go. She resigned on November 28th, just six days after Bart vs. Thanksgiving was first aired. 
After her last showing in Parliament, where she exclaimed, I'm enjoying this, she left Downing Street for the last time in tears. Thanks to the voting system used, Heseltine did not succeed Thatcher as Tory leader. Instead, John Major was victorious. He would go on to contest and win the 1992 general election after Labour leader Neil Kinnock went for a stroll on the beach, got caught out by a wave and fell on his arse. There's also a headline in a certain <clears throat> newspaper, but we won't go into that. Which as, you won't be buying, of course. No, definitely not. As for Margaret Thatcher, she went to the back benches for a bit before being given a peerage and entering the House of Lords. She also cashed in, being paid a quarter of a million dollars a year by Philip Morris, the tobacco company. Oh. That's nice, isn't it? She eventually died in 2013 at the age of 84 after suffering a stroke. Okay, legacy. Why do I hate Thatcher so much? To me, she lacked a basic humanity. Her responses to the Bradford City fire and the Hillsborough disaster seemed cold and robotic. The closing of the pits devastated mining communities, and she didn't seem to care at all. It's as if profits and economic progress were more important than people. And in an interview with Woman's Own magazine in 1987, she stated that there is no such thing as society, and there are individual men and women and there are families, and no government can do anything. It's our duty to look after ourselves. Nowadays, we'd call that libertarianism, and it's an ideology I despise. Because we can look after each other. We can ensure everyone has enough food, a roof over their head, medicine, dreams, aspirations, etc. We can do all that, and anyone who says we can't is not only wrong, but is wrong in a totally malevolent way. So there we are. That's my, that's my take on Thatcher. Because it was really taking the heart and soul out of the, out of the country with, with the privatisations, the, the selling off the family silver, the, the financial deregulation. So, yeah. In a way, I'm a bit sad that, I'm, I'm a bit sad that we're not going to be talking about Thatcher in the future. Because although she was, you know, horrible, she pretty much was the 1980s. Yeah. You know, she, she, she was in charge of the country for the whole of the 1980s and she you know, formed a strong alliance with Reagan in the States. Uh, she would. She was very much involved in the world stage and the Cold War. So, yeah, to, to not get to talk about that anymore is a, is, is, is a little bit sad. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, Thatcher is one of the few people who, when she died, this is going to sound horrible, but I didn't mind that people were celebrating the fact that she died. I was in Liverpool at the time, and we'd gone out for our usual pub quiz at an Irish pub. Got a bit of a double whammy there. So not only were we in Liverpool, we were also in an Irish pub, and obviously Thatcher's uh, relationship with the Irish was not that great. And yeah, and the pub put on free jelly and ice cream, and you had people chanting, Maggie, 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 dead, dead, dead. Because <laughs> obviously they used to chant, Maggie, 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 out, out, out. Well, uh, she is yeah. very much out now. Um, she is. Yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, to see as we as we carry on now now Thatcherless whether any British political stories are actually going to start creeping into retrospecticus. Um, thus far, everything has, has necessarily been Thatcher esque, mm. um, and it'll be interesting to see if I remember anything that John Major actually did. Um, <laughs> although, from from all accounts, he seemed to be a, a much more uh, beloved leader. Uh, albeit one that was was suffering from the Tory party's lack of credibility following Thatcher. Mm. Which is probably for the best. But but then you get Tony Blair. Thatcher had some... I wouldn't say, wouldn't say they were necessarily good things to say about Tony Blair because the competing ideologies in the 80s were, broadly speaking, neoliberalism and socialism. And also, and also you've got to remember that this was a time when we think of socialism now and we maybe think about it in sort of fluffy terms. So socialism means NHS and not having to pay to go to university and uh, welfare states and all that sort of thing. But socialism in the 80s and 70s, you know, the Soviet Union was socialist. East Germany was socialist. Socialism at the time meant, meant poverty and authoritarianism and oppression. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit weird if you study modern history to see people going, yay, socialism, 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 and it's like... <laughs> I, you keep saying that word. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. 
or you've got an idealized version of what you think it means and how you mean it is very very good but that's not what it meant in Thatcher's day so you just you have to bear that in mind when you're talking about socialism absolutely yeah it's you know no one system is flawless uh, but the sort of romanticization of it is getting a bit worrying yeah yeah well also also Tories still have a huge romanticization if that's a word about Thatcher it's a word because we've used it twice. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember at Thatcher's funeral you had um, George Osborne, who I think was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. Uh, he was he was in floods of tears over it uh, because because he because Thatcher bore out modern Tory ideology. Certainly the austerity that that we're still in now, but the Tories introduced in twenty ten. Thatcher would have been very proud of. You know, it's. Cutting public spending didn't work because the national debt's higher than ever. <laughs> Thatcher was like, you know, sort of the birth of the modern Tory party, essentially. And uh, yeah, it's all a bit horrible because because it's because it's putting, like I say, it's putting profits over people. It's you've got a coal mine there that employs tens of thousands of people, and you know the whole town, the whole community is dependent on it, but it's not making money, so we'll shut it down. Well, what's going to happen to those thousands of people? Don't care. Leave it to the market, that'll sort it out. But it, it's, yeah, it, it's the it's the coldness and the callousness and the uncaring. It's just, it's inhuman. That's my main beef with Thatcher. She was largely inhuman. And those are the, uh, the overriding public qualities of our current government as well. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, mm-hmm. Would have been interesting to see the Tories before Thatcherism, which is obviously not something I got to enjoy by by dint of when I was born. No, um, you can read about it, but you'll never experience it. No, so. exactly, exactly. And if you disagree with what I think about Margaret Thatcher, maybe you love Margaret Thatcher. Maybe maybe you think she's great. And if you do, then you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are underscore Retrospecticus. Or you can email podcast at retrospecticus.org. Perhaps you have an anecdote that somehow weaves in Margaret Thatcher and Peter Alice. Oh, yes. Because if you do, we'd be very interested in that. Yes, yes. More, more Peter Alice facts, please. And remember, I'm not going to bother checking them. Now, just before we go, it would be remiss of me not to mention that our uh, friends Ben and Phil over at Don't Let's Chart are about to unleash a mini-sode which may well be Simpsons-related. And who knows? Perhaps one of your favourites from Retrospecticus will be dropping in to say hello. Clue, it's not my dad's (laughs) favourite. And until then, we'll uh, see you next time. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye. Yes, yes, it's... It's well. Obviously, we don't have Thanksgiving in the UK, and you know more about it than I do because you've experienced Thanksgiving firsthand. I mean, it just seems it just seems like a lot of excess to me. So you have your big turkey dinner at the end of November for Thanksgiving, and then you have another one at the end of December for Christmas. And I don't like the idea of having two turkey dinners. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to tell a joke and I tripped off on it. You bug bollocks. Okay. Pretend pretend you've never heard it yeah, before. Okay. Right. Yeah.